Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host today, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. Well, today we're going to bring to you a longer conversation, a bonus episode, on one of the most important ethical issues that Christians are wrestling with, which is the morality behind vaccines. For example, we're gonna we're gonna explore questions like: Is it wrong to get the vaccine because it was developed with a cell line from aborted fetuses? Why are atheists far more likely to say they will get the vaccine? About ninety percent compared to white evangelical Protestants, fifty four percent is getting the vaccine kind of conceding to government control. Some have suggested is the vaccine safe? Who should be prioritized? These kinds of questions, including some that people have even said that getting the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. Now, we recorded this first on my YouTube channel because, as you know, in the Think Biblically podcast, we typically have episodes about 30 minutes. And we wanted to go into some more depth on this because there's so many questions about the ethics of vaccines and also wanted to take some live questions. So we just recorded this on my YouTube channel, downloaded the audio and are making it available to you as soon as we can. So we hope this will give you just some wisdom and reflection to think through biblically how we can approach vaccines. And as always, if you enjoy it, we hope you'll share it with a friend. Is it wrong to get the vaccine because it was developed with a cell line from aborted fetuses? Today we have a very important and timely conversation related to all ethical issues tied to the vaccine with the COVID virus. And I have a guest today who is eminently qualified to talk about this. He is a friend. He's a colleague at Talbot, my co-host for the Think Biblically podcast. He's also has his doctorate in ethics and written a a number of books, including this book, Moral Choices, would be and is one of the leading Christian ethicists of our day. So, uh, Dr. Scott Ray, thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure, Sean. Glad glad to be able to... uh actually see see faces instead of just doing audio for like we do for our podcast that that is very Uh, true that makes it fun well let's let's jump in because people have a lot of questions about this you contacted me and said we need to do a show on this tell me why you're so concerned about this right now because i'm 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 alarmed at the percentages of people that i hear that are refusing to get vaccinated for covid Hmm. uh and it's it's in some quarters that you you might not expect. Uh, I mean, I've heard of you know frontline healthcare workers refusing to be vaccinated, uh, firefighters refusing the vaccine, and then the statistics among religious affiliation, uh, conservative evangelical Christians tend to be some of the lowest in terms of willingness to get the vaccine as opposed to other religious groups or even non-religious groups. They seem. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ seem to be some of the most skeptical about the vaccine. And so I figured there, there are probably some ethical or theological reasons for that. I figured we might as well tackle that. Well, maybe let's start there and then we'll get to the question of the vaccine being developed from aborted babies. But from the Pew Research I looked at today, it said evangelicals, 54 percent white evangelicals have said that they will get the vaccine. of atheists said they would get the vaccine. What is going on here? I think some, some of those I think are probably people who are just anti-vaccines in general Mm. for, for a, for a whole host of reasons that, 
have to do with the, you know, the cell lines from aborted fetuses, like you referred to, to a sort of a libertarian view of government where there's just a higher level of mistrust of government and a mistrust of science. Um, I mean, there's th- those reasons are they're all across the board on that. So it's a little hard to categorize just and pinpoint just one. That's fair, but that is a huge difference between atheists and Christians. We need to think hard about and see if we have any blind spots about this. Well, let's let's jump into one of the more controversial questions for Christians that I've seen a lot of discussion about. And you have spoken up on issues of pro-life. So have I in my writings and discussions and debates. If you are pro-life, how can you support a vaccine developed from a line of aborted babies? Well, I, I actually, yeah, I think our, our, our pro-life chops, I think, are beyond dispute uh, mm-hmm. for, for both of us. Um, and there's plenty of material in print from both of us to attest to that. But I think it's possible to be uh, an advocate for vaccines uh, and be pro-life at the same time. Okay. Uh, and here's the, the reason for that. It is, it, it is true that there, there are cell lines that were, were begun many years ago uh, from aborted fetuses. Uh, whether they were electively or not, I think is still up for up for grabs. But let's assume the worst case scenario that it was from electively aborted fetuses. The cell line that is used in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine is different than the one that's used in the Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca cell okay. lines. Now, here I think what what your listeners I think may not grasp is there, there's a big difference between using fetal remains directly for a treatment and using the tissue from aborted fetuses to start a cell line. Because okay. once, once the cell line is begun, and, and these, the, one, the one that, just so your listeners will know, just for a point of reference, the cell line that's used for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine is called HEK293. What that stands for, I don't have any idea, <laughs> okay. uh, no, nor do we need to know. That was harvested in the Netherlands in 1973. Hmm. That cell line has been active for, for you, know, you know, 40 plus years. What happens is once the, once the cell line is begun, it, it becomes what's called immortalized, which means it is capable of dividing and reproducing and sort of continuing on and on indefinitely uh, if it's if it's in the right laboratory conditions. Once a cell line is immortalized, it contains no fetal remains, no fetal parts. The fetal parts are, are used just to jumpstart the cell line. Now, they are the, this this particular cell line is used in. I mean, just tons of treatments. Uh, it's used in the vaccines for mumps, measles, and rubella. Okay. It's used in treatments for diabetes, for arthritis, for mm. I mean, just all. I mean, you you would if you if you did not use anything that had this cell line involved with it, you'd probably have to become something akin to a Christian scientist and step out of uh, step out of medicine altogether. Mm. It's it's been that impactful in medicine. Now, I think what 
what, what's important, I think, to re- to recognize is how the cell line is used in the vaccine itself. Okay. Because there's a difference between a cell line being used in the production of a vaccine and being used in the testing of a vaccine. So for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the HEK293 cell line was used only to test in animals to test the efficacy of the vaccine, basically to make sure it works. Okay. And they just, yeah, they use a bit of the cell line to see if the antibodies are actually being produced by the vaccine. None of the cell line is used in the actual production of the vaccine. uh, And none of it is used except for a very small part in the test. And there, and there are no fetal remains in any of the vaccines. The Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccine is a little bit different because the cell line there is actually used in, in the actual production of the vaccine. So not just the testing, but in the production, um, and even the the cell, I, you know, I didn't know this until I started looking into this in a little more detail. But the uh, that particular cell line was harvested in the Netherlands, which in 1973, when it was harvested, only abortions when the when the life of the mother was in danger were legal in the Netherlands at the at the time. Wow. So, you know, whether that proves that it came from a morally justifiable uh, termination of pregnancy or not, I. We can probably debate that, but I think at least the, the likelihood is that it came from an abortion that I think most people would recognize as being morally legitimate. Okay. Um, so then again, this is different. That pr- using using this to produce a cell lines is different than using you know stem cells from aborted from aborted fetuses that are being aborted today to di- to directly treat disease. Got it. Uh, so here, I guess here's the way I'd put the, the ethics of this. I think there's a difference between impact and complicity. Okay. That just because something has an just because something has an impact on a medical practice doesn't automatically make you complicit with the evil action. For for example, uh, one of the other well-known cell lines that's been produced. Your listeners may be familiar with. Uh, the, the African-American woman, Henrietta Lacks, who, who uh, was ba- – her, her – her, she, she had a tumor that the cell line was developed from. She was an African-American woman, and this was done back in the 30s where consent – you know, consent was not really what it is today. And being African-American, you know, her consent was considered irrelevant uh, in, in any case. Uh, and so – it's morally tainted because consent was not properly obtained, but the cell line has continued to be continued to be useful in treatments along the way. Okay. Even when you know none of us were complicit in the lack of consent, none of us who benefit from that are complicit in the the abortion that was taken that, that took place to form these cell lines. It's it's also like uh, back during World War II, the Nazis did some really grisly experiments on Jews in the concentration camps. And there was a lot of debate over whether we ought to be able to use the data that was gathered from those experiments. Interesting. Uh, and I, and now if those, if those experiments were going on today, we would say whether you use the data or not is completely beside the point. You ought to stop those experiments. And I would say to this, 
to, to the use of the cell lines from aborted fetuses, if we were using aborted fetuses today to found cell lines, okay, then we ought to just stop doing that. Whether we can use the cell line or not is beside the point. We ought to stop the practice. Okay, well, we have stopped the practice. Uh, now, uh, tissue, uh, stem cells and so from aborted fetuses are still being used for a lot of things, but the stem cells are not what it, what's at stake here. It's a cell line that was begun years and years ago, uh, and has been and has been immortalized. And I think that the the, the proximity okay. to that immoral act, if it was indeed that at all, which I think is questionable, okay. uh, is so distant and so far removed that I think it takes away most most allegations of complicity and renders them groundless. Tell me if you'd agree with this analogy. I heard uh, a medical doctor who's an, who is Asian describe that some of the railways across the U.S. were built on the backs of some Asian <clears throat> migrants who were deeply mistreated. Now some of the area where that was built, they have new tracks and new trains, but they're using some of the, the groundwork that was laid unjustly. But in rebuilding it and using what is there, it's not complicit to the wrongs that were first done. I I completely agree. Okay. Um, You know, I, you know, none of us were around just, just because, just because you benefit from an illicit practice doesn't necessarily give you guilt or complicity Mm -hmm. in it. So let me hear the quick answers. So do any of the vaccines so contain... Was that, was that, was that mine, was mine too long here to start? <laughs> no. no, that's not what I meant. We need, we, need the clarity. we need the clarity with this. But I want to hear the bullet point answer, so to speak, just for clarity. Do any of the vaccines contain fetal tissue or offshoot? No. Okay. Were any actual cells taken directly from fetuses used in this research? No. Do any of the that vaccines apply, that applies to both of them? To, okay, to both that of them. To all, all four vaccines. All four vaccines. Okay, yeah. last question: Do any of the vaccines encourage more abortions for medical research? No. Okay. No, and the reason I, is because they're, they're not necessary. I mean, the cell lines are immortal. I mean, they're, okay. they're going to go on forever. Let me ask. Here's a question from a pastor and a friend of mine, friend of uh, Biola's. That I know you you thought about this. Uh, Evan Wickham says, "How do you respond to the pushback? Trust the science. Well, haven't science and Christianity been at odds plenty of times before?" Uh, yes and no. I want to restate your question, Evan, just a little bit. I think it's it's not that Christianity and science are at odds. It's that the worldview of Christianity and the worldview of naturalism are at odds. And there's no, there's no question that they are significantly at odds in multiple places. But I don't think that just because the worldviews are different, I don't think there's, there's any reason to not to trust science in areas that are not worldview dependent. Okay. So, I mean, on origins, yeah, I've got a lot of questions about origin because those, are, you know, those questions are worldview dependent. Um, but there's nothing, there's nothing about the vaccines, in my view, that are worldview dependent in the same way. So I think 
I think the, the way the question is stated, I think, is not not quite the way I would state it. Okay. Because um, I think Christianity and science have always been in accord. Uh, it's just the worldviews underlying the two are what are so different. Scott, because I know you personally for a while and you're, you're my co-host, I know you read a ton and try to get both sides of an issue. But I'm seeing people all over the place buying into fake news on this. And it's even hard for me sometimes to go, what is true? What is not true? What advice would you have for people to not buy into fake news and find trusted sources on this this issue? Well, I'd say don't don't get your news in an echo chamber would be for one. And okay. don't don't get don't get your news only from sources that you tend to agree with. Um, look at a variety of sources. Uh, okay. Some I think some of the best place to get this. Uh, I would think are some of the, you know, some of the websites from the National Institutes of Health, the CDC. Um, I find some of the some of the sources to be the most objective, uh, in my view, like the Atlantic um, is, is, I think, is very helpful. Um, you know, and I supplement I would I supplement what I what I hear on Fox News with what I hear on CNN. Um, and usually we're. Where those two sources agree, I think we've got a pretty good indicator that uh, it's not fake news. Okay. I'd be I'd be careful of you know getting my news from Facebook sites. Okay, um, I, I'd be a little, I'd be a little leery of that, um, and you know at least at, at least get your news from sources that require uh, vetting and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they require confirmation of okay. stories before they take them on the air. A few people have expressed suspicion about the pharmaceutical companies and the money that's behind this. So let me throw a question up here from a Redeemed Channel and get your thoughts. It says, what about profit motive? Are we allowed to question these major corporations? Yeah, those those are two different questions. So let me answer the second. The second was definitely we are allowed to question major corporations, um, but to, to question them about what I think is is okay. the more appropriate question. There's nothing wrong with the with the profit motive. Um, in fact, I think for for most companies, they would admit that the profit is not what they seek. Uh, it's a byproduct of producing their putting out their product or service with excellence uh, and it's what it's what they expect to earn for their shareholders or for their owners um, as a result of doing that well and, and this is where corporations I think are analogous to the, what the professions were in Adam Smith's time where a doctor or a lawyer would was the goal was to serve the community well with their product or service by doing so, they could expect a reasonable return uh, and a reasonable standard of living. Uh, okay. And I would say profit's a little bit like food for a company. You have to have it to survive. But if that's all you focus on, we say there's something not quite right with that picture. Hmm. And so I would say profit's a byproduct, not the goal. Uh, okay. And if it becomes the goal, then I think it's 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 out of balance. But there's nothing nothing evil about profit. Profit's just a market signal that you're using your resource as well. Okay. Uh, now I don't I don't know what the pharmaceutical companies are making out of this. 
Um, I don't know what I don't know what each dose sells for. Uh, my guess is that they have, you know, they have a contract with governments and, and state agencies uh, to provide this at a you know at a considerable discount that they would as compared to other drugs. Uh, you know, I, I doubt that they're charging the federal government a thousand dollars a dose for this. Sure. You know, I, I, my, my, I could be wrong about that, but I think if they were, somebody would have already raised the specter of price gouging already. Okay. All right. Good. That that's helpful. What from an ethical standpoint, uh, what people should be prioritized in getting the vaccine? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and that's a that's a much tougher question because, um, you know, when we talk about distributive justice, or the the basis on which the goods of society ought to be distributed, uh, there are a whole host of criteria that philosophers have put forth for some time, and it could be based on, I mean, uh, commonly based on need or on merit, or on social worth, or on ability to pay, or you know, a whole host of other things. I think we have chosen correctly here to base to base this on the basis of risk slash need that those who are the most at risk of bad outcomes from getting COVID are first in line, um, which are people over 65 and those with mm. underlying health conditions. Also, the people who are most at risk to the public health in general, which I think justifies putting healthcare workers at the very front of the line, uh, people who are waiting tables in restaurants and handling food closer to the front of the line. My youngest son is 24. He's waiting tables in a restaurant in Los Angeles. Um, he's already gotten you know one dose of his, and I think he got the second one over the weekend. Um, I think that's fine, too. Um, I think when it comes to the rest, then I think it probably should be more on a more be done at random or on a first come first served okay. basis. Um, you know, we get a bit of an analogy to this, you know, back when, when dialysis first came on the scene in the 1960s, there were far more people who needed dialysis immediately than there were machines available. Okay. And they had to make some really tough calls about how they distributed those. And after they, after they went on the basis of need because everybody needed it. It's kind of everybody was on the same level playing field in terms of need. They decided that social worth couldn't, that that's not fair. Uh, and they ended up saying, they ended up basically cho choosing it by lot or by doing it at random. Interesting. Because that was the only way that they could come up with a way that was fair hmm. to allocate that scarce resource. Okay. Now, the difference would be, you know, with the vaccine, if we had a limited number and we weren't going to get any more, then I'd say we pick it at random. But we're, we're eventually going to have enough where everybody's going to be able to be vaccinated. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's really about timing, not so much about access. And I think okay. we've been right. I think we've been right ethically the way we've done this. Okay. Okay, good. There was a question that was next on my list, and uh, Jason asked it. So I'm going to pull his question over and see what your thoughts are on this one. He says, should vaccine be mandatory by the government, Dr. Ray, like California's SB 276? Tell me what SB 276 is. 
I'm, I kind of assumed you might know. I don't know. So let's just. I don't, I don't know. Jason. <laughs> oh, Jason. I'm waiting for I mean, I'm asking Jason. So oh. uh, I was. Uh, well. Uh, here, I guess this is, I think, a, a, very, a really tough one. I would not be in favor of government mandating hmm. vaccines. Though I do think it's okay for restaurants, for schools, eventually, to treat the COVID vaccine like, or like schools, for example, like okay. like schools treat the mumps, measles, rubella vaccine. Uh, that you don't have to get it, but if you don't get it, you can't come in the door. Okay. Um, I, th- I, th- I, don't, I don't have a problem with an organization setting that standard. I mean, mo- you know, most restaurants now, you're not allowed without a mask to come in, and everybody's kind of gotten used to that. Um, but originally, I mean, I was in restaurants where people loudly objected to having to wear masks, and the, you know, the management sort of put, just politely threw them out. Wow. Um, and, I think, and I think they were justified in doing that because it's, it's their – establishment and they're allowed to set the rules with, you know, within limits. But I would not, I think that would be a case of government overreach if they mandated that everybody had to be vaccinated. So essentially the concern for the government requiring it, even though there would seemingly be a net positive gain in health is the negative side of just government forcing people to do something against their will. Is that fair? Yeah. And the reason, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a precedent in the law for that already. I mean, Sean, if somebody, if you're taken to the hospital, uh, and let's say you're a Jehovah's Witness, uh, and you say, you know, abs- absolutely no blood transfusions, and they give it to you against your will, those physicians go will go to jail for battery. Hmm. Uh, and so, and that's the same for injections that forcing someone to government forcing someone to get an injection against their will is tantamount to battery under the law already so there's i think there's a well-established tradition of consent for okay. for medical treatments now some caveats to that like if it's an emergency or with a with a child you know parental consent is considered sufficient but um in general i I think the laws already the laws already spoken on that, and I think rightly so. There's some great questions coming through here. I'm doing my best to navigate them. I've got a couple more for you, and then we why don't will you answer? It. Why don't you answer some of them? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't written a whole textbook on ethics, although I've written a student book <laughs> on ethics. Uh, so you're do, you're doing great, by the way. These are tough, really tough questions. They are hard questions. Yeah, um, agreed. One, you, you got good good thoughtful listeners here. There are, yeah. There, there's some great people on kind of all sides of this issue. One of the questions or the issues we've seen is people jumping the line to get the vaccine seems obviously wrong and out of place in most circumstances. At best, maybe I could think of somebody who just needs it urgently to survive. But that person aside, what are your thoughts on that phenomenon? Well, I'm not – I don't I, – that's hard. That's a hard one to justify. Okay. Um with this one exception, uh, I've you know so the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have an expiration period on them. You know, once they are thawed out, they're only good for a relatively short period of time. 
and I've, I'm familiar with stories from a, a number of distribution sites for the vaccine that uh, at, at the end of the day had doses left over and were going to go bad uh, and would, they were going to be forced to throw them out. And so they allowed for, you know, some of their employees and their family members who would were, were not yet qualified under okay. state guidelines to get the vaccine. And I think that's okay because, a, you know, a, wor- a worse scenario was avoided, uh, which would have been throwing them out. Other than that, I can't think of too many exceptions uh, that, I, that I think would be morally justifiable. Um, and so, you know, my, my wife is in, a, in an age bracket where, you know, she has no under, underlying health conditions. She's in an age okay. bracket that's not, it's, it's not, it's not next up, but it's, it's close. Um, and she's tempted, I think, tempted to jump the line, but has said, you know, she's not going to do that. Um, you know, my understanding mm-hmm. is you don't, you don't have to prove that you have a pre-existing condition uh, in order to get, to get in line. Sure. Um, cause there are a lot, I mean, there are a lot of people in underserved communities that just don't have access to a physician to prove that. Uh, and so I, my, my understanding is we haven't required that kind of proof in order to get us a, a spot in line. I mean, you do have to prove other things that are, you know, that are provable without a burden, like your age or your employment. Uh, like if you're in, in a, in a necessary industry or something like that, um, but advanced, you know, pre-existing medical conditions, you don't have to prove. And and I think that's probably right not to make people prove that because mm. uh, that that's, that's awfully tough on lots of people who just don't have, who don't have good access to medical care. Scott, here's probably about as tough of a one as I can ask you. And I uh, don't expect you to have a perfect answer for it, but maybe just give us some moral principles how to think about this. Is there some people who have said, the distribution of this should favor certain races who have been historically marginalized and today have less access, like you said, say to a medical doctor and a proper diagnosis. Uh, What are your thoughts or how at least should we think about that question? Because I know as Christians, we want to help those who have less access. We want as many people to be helped as possible, but also want to be wise in terms of how this is distributed. Well, the Bible's pretty clear that I'm supposed to love my neighbor, hmm. and it's I think it's it's equally clear that I have ob- I have special obligations toward my neighbors who are poor, needy, and marginalized, um, and who just who who are who just don't have access to the kinds of things that you know that people who have more resources ha- have ready access to. So I don't have I don't have a problem with prioritizing some of these underserved communities. I think as long as we recognize that even in underserved communities, you have a, you have a fairly wide variety in the distribution of income in the first place. Uh, and so with that of okay. race per se, because I, I don't necessarily equate race or ethnicity with being socioeconomically disadvantaged. Okay. Now that's uh, that often is the case, but I don't think that's a necessary conclusion to draw. Okay, that's great. Look, so here's one that's come up. There's a Washington Post article about this. Somebody commented on the side about COVID vaccine being the mark of the beast. Now, before you answer that, 
we've gonna we're gonna have some time for questions to come in. I'm gonna do my best to pull those in, obviously if they relate. So if you can start loading in some of your comments, uh, we'll do our best to tackle them. But is there reason to believe that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast? You know, not any more so than the uh, uh, the bar the barcodes at the grocery store. You know, that was supposed to be ability to have the mark of the beast scanned 20 years ago. Um, okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't see any, I don't see any reason to think that that might be the case. It's interesting to go back through history and you see when social security numbers came out, there was concern about the mark of the beast, credit card numbers, phone numbers. Uh, I mean, almost every time some numbers applied, people applied to revelation 13 and frankly, Revelation is one of the hardest books to interpret that Christians differ over whether it's all in the past, the past and the future, entirely in the future. There's such a range of interpretation. I tell people to go back and read Revelation 13 carefully. And I think reading this vaccine into it is a big, big stretch for a range of different reasons. Well, um, you have to read Revelation, too, in terms of whether it's you know figurative or literal. Mm. Um because there's a lot of a lot of very vivid figurative language there that is not intended to be taken literally. It points to a literal underlying reality. Sure. But it but the the figure of speech itself is not to be taken literally. One of the questions that's come up a few times is more medical about concern for the future. Three, five years down the road, are we injecting <laughs> ourselves with something that will look back and be like, oh my goodness, we had no idea because of say infertility or cancer or some other physical effect by this. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really good medical question uh, that we should get an MD in here to answer. Um, but I, I think there's the, the risk, I think, would be sort of similar to uh, maybe the overuse of antibiotics today. And that you have you have some you have some people who are just re, they're resistant to antibiotics and some bugs that are resistant to antibiotics some bacteria are resistant. It may be that as vir- viruses mutate, um, I think there is a question about how how long lasting the immunity is okay. from COVID. Um, but I think you know f- five years from now we'll just, we'll have to see. Um, but I think the, the risk to public health in a wide variety of forms at this point, I think, outweighs any reasonable risk that people are foreseeing in the future. Now, to be sure, nobody's prophetic and we don't, sure. you know, we, we don't have omniscience about the future. Um, but I, I don't think there's any reason to be skeptical about the, the vaccine and what it might produce then uh, the only thing I could see even remotely on the horizon would be something like, you know, viruses that become resistant to vaccines. Gotcha. Um, so that, but, you know, if we don't, if we don't vaccinate now, the virus is going to run rampant and, you know, it may something may run rampant five years from now, but I don't think that's relevant to the note, to the idea that we, you know, we got to take care of what's running rampant now mm. and we'll, you know, we'll assess the risks of that later. But the risks of not vaccinating people now are so huge uh, 
that I mean, there's no, there's no way to get the kind of herd immunity that we need without probably three quarters of the world's population being vaccinated. Three quarters. Wow. That's that's a lot. I, I appreciate that you say we don't know for sure three to five years down the road. These are trade-offs and educated guesses. But as far as what I understand, and I'm not obviously a medical doctor here, there is no chance, at least the Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson vaccines, that somebody could get the vaccine and end up getting the virus itself. Like you're not getting a simple dose of the virus that builds up natural immunity. That's, it's a different yeah. process, correct? That's correct. Uh, live virus is not in any of these. So the, in fact, they've 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 tried this process for many years in the past, but this is the first time they've they've been able to get this process to work. And there's a there's a molecular tweak that they've made that has made it work for these that prove that they just were not able to get done in the past. Um, so yeah, and whether you know I. I can't see five years in the future, but I can see six months in the future if we don't these vaccines. Okay. Scott, what would you say to somebody who says, look, this particularly would be a Christian, probably the certain theological bent, getting a vaccine shows a lack of trust in God. You're trusting science rather than trusting God. Why don't you have more faith and believe that God is sovereign? Um. Then I would I would I would say that to be consistent with that you need to be a Christian scientist. Okay, and, and forego forego a Christian who is a scientist. Uh, you mean Christian no, science? No, a, a Christian science practitioner. Got it. That forgoes all forgoes all medicine, largely for those reasons. Um, you know, it sort of it reminds me a bit of the guy who's stuck in the floodwaters. And prays to God for deliverance, and guy comes along in a boat and says, "Hey, hop in! I'll take you to safety." And guy says, "No, I'm waiting for God to provide for me." Uh, you know, and a helicopter comes down with a rope and says, "You know, come grab on! I'll take you to safety." I uh, said, "The guy says, no, I'm waiting for God to provide for me.'" You know, and finally he drowns and gets to heaven and asks the Lord, "What happened?" And he said, "I hey, I sent you a boat and a helicopter." You know, why didn't you take advantage of those? I think, <laughs> I, I, think I think God would say, I, I'm sending you medicine too. Okay. Uh, and from our, the, theologically, from our view of general revelation and common grace, you know, medicine, I think, is one of the great gifts of God by, by virtue of common grace to help alleviate and uh, alleviate, help alleviate the, the general effects of, of, of sin in the world. Um and so, I mean, yeah, within boundaries, of course, but I think to that kind of skepticism about vaccines for reasons of lack of faith needs to be taken, I think, to its logical conclusion. And I don't know, I don't know too many people besides Christian science practitioners who are willing to live with that. That's, that's fair. When it's all said and done, you and I both don't understand the science behind this. We haven't had a view into the kitchen, so to speak, where this is made. So whether or not we get the vaccine is a matter of trust. 
That's really what it's going to boil down to. So tell me why you trust the process here and why you think other Christians and non-Christians should also trust it. Well, because, you know, so much of what we do day in and day out is based on trust. And it's mostly trusting of non-believers to do their jobs. You know, I got got in my car to go get lunch before coming on this with you. I trusted that when I hit my brakes, my car was going to stop. I trust the people who manufacture and engineer my brakes that that they're going to do their job. I trusted that the food that I got from Chipotle is is safe and not going to cause damage to me. Uh, I trust that when I get on an airplane again, that the pilot knows what they're doing. Um, you know, we just, we, we don't, we don't have space in our lives to verify everything that we put our trust in as a matter of habit. Um, mm. and you know, I, you know, med- med- again, medicine is, has an overwhelming trustworthy track record. Mm. Yeah. There have been some, yeah, there've been, there've been some things where medicine has stepped way over the line. Um, and, and, and though some of those are in the past, some of those are, are more recent. Uh, but I think o- overwhelmingly we take those as exceptions to the general rule that physicians and healthcare professionals are in, in their business in order to serve their patients and to provide for the best interest of their patients. That's why we say doctors and healthcare professionals have fiduciary obligations to their patients, hmm where the interest of their patients always trumps the physician's self-interest. And that's yeah. the definition of a fiduciary relationship. Um, and I, I trust, you know, the scientific community. Uh, I trust re- peer-reviewed research that's subject to rigorous review and assessment. Uh, I trust the pharmaceutical companies in general whose work, the FDA, the FDA requires usually years and years of rigorous testing that's peer reviewed. Uh, so I just, I think it's, a, I think it's a bit irrational not to trust medicine given how, how much we trust other things and other institutions just as a matter of course you know, I mean, we, we I mean, uh, think of what would happen to our, our lives would come to a grinding halt if we had to verify everything that we trust in today. Fair enough. I got one last theological question for you and then a practical one that I, I think is interesting. Uh, Jamie Massengale says, uh, oops, I put, I commented the wrong one on here. Asked a question. Oh, it was stated well. Let me see if I can find this very quickly. Oh, here it is. Uh, Jamie Massengale says, what about when God sends plagues? What about when God sends plagues? Should we interpret this as a plague? And I think the heart of the question is I saw some Christians early on saying, for example, in New York, because it was hit so hard, this was a result of, say, the abortion bill that was passed and cheered in that state Maybe God is bringing a judgment on them. And I I have serious reservations with that interpretation apart from God directly telling us this. Do you read anything theological into the plague? Uh, I say, yeah, with your caveat, 
you know, because the difference is, is in biblical times, the, the prophets actually told people directly, this is what's happening. And the Mosaic law actually was structured in such a way that their, their national prosperity and obedience was dependent upon their obedience to God's law. And the, you know, and the law has some of the covenant cursings being plague, pestilence, drought, things like that. But we're not, you know, the New Testament is pretty clear. We're not under the law today as a rule of life. Okay. And no country today has the same theological standing before God that the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament. No, no country today has that same covenant relationship to God. Um, now, I think there probably are some cause and effect things. Um, I think there's, you know, you can make, you know, ca- some cause and effect things that, uh, you know, an, an, an alcoholic who has liver disease, um, you know, does God send that? Oh, well, I'd say, I'd say there, you, you reap what you sow as a result of sort of the natural order of things. Hmm. But I think what you've described there in New York, I think is a stretch because that, that doesn't really fit the natural order of things. Right. Uh, you know, we see. For example, we saw surges in the virus after Thanksgiving and Christmas. I think that's because of the the natural order of things, that people were less careful and less protected, and therefore we had these really significant surges. Is that God sending those? Uh, Other than being consistent with the general order of things that work in a cause-and-effect world, I'd say I, I just don't think we have a lot of evidence biblically to suggest anything more than that. I think that's wise, and I would definitely agree with that, holding judgment. I remember one conservative a while ago pointed towards the flood that happened in New Orleans and said it's God judging the wickedness there. And then the same person supported a political party, which was rained out at their convention. It had issues, and I thought, you know what? We tend to be selective of who we think God is judging. We all have those blinders, myself included. So I think that's good wisdom. Hey, those of you watching this, uh, Dr. Scott Ray is one of the leading Christian ethicists in the country and beyond. We are co-hosts for the Think Biblically podcast. So if you've enjoyed that, there I don't even know if there's a link below, but check it out. We put out a weekly podcast on theological, cultural, and apologetic issues. I think that you would really, well, that's great. There's a number of comments, people who agree, people who disagree. But certainly this has given you something to think about, those who are watching theologically and ethically. And if you differ, go back to scripture and just make sure you're being as consistent and thoughtful as you can be because lives are at stake with this. We need to be careful how we approach it. So, Scott, appreciate a ton you coming on. This was fun. 